up into your word, God, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, this word that is living and active. God, may your words, may my words be your words. God, may you lead us and guide us in all truth in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I was preparing this sermon this week, I couldn't help, and you'll, you'll understand why, I couldn't help but think about how easy it is to make judgments about other people. How easy it is. For example, let me give you some examples that I came up with, some that I deal with. One is someone cuts you, maybe someone cuts you off on the freeway, you know, makes a bonehead move on the road. Obviously, immediately, that person is an idiot and they can't drive, right? We go there. Or have you ever seen that person who has that crazy dyed hair or the tats everywhere and the piercings everywhere and right away, we make a judgment about that person's character or that person's lifestyle. Or you ever see that child, we're in a grocery store and we see that child going absolutely berserk. You know, they're completely out of control. And we wonder, what is wrong with that kid's parents, right? We've done those kinds of things. We often make judgments when we hear a person's political background or their social views, their political views, or even what kind of career they have, or how much money we find out they make, or what kind of home they live in, don't we? It's easy to make judgments on people. Now, these might seem like small incidents, but the reality is that being judgmental and judging others, at least according to the scriptures, is no small thing. And actually, it has some pretty dire implications, both for the health of our relationships with other people, and also really to a certain degree, how we will be judged by God. That's why as Jesus is beginning to wrap up this Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at, this most famous sermon, he addresses today the topic or the issue of judging others. So I want to give you right off the bat, the main idea that I see that Jesus is teaching from this this morning is that truly healthy or God-honoring relationships are contingent on, on others and others-focused attitude, okay? Healthy or God-honoring relationships are contingent on an others-focused attitude. And we're going to see this as we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 this morning. So he, and now what he's going to do, this first half, though, he's going to be talking about the importance of having proper attitudes towards others, okay? The proper attitude towards others. And let's just jump right on in. Let's look at the first two verses here. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So here we go. In teaching on the importance of having the proper attitude towards others, Jesus begins by telling us, do not judge. He says, do not judge. Now, this verb talking about judge here, it's really a legal term. And really what it means is to decide or to determine or to reach a conclusion about somebody or something. It's not, it's not in and of itself a negative thing, though, but, but the illustration that we're going to be looking at pretty soon here shows that the emphasis of what he's talking about here is really on the fault-finding, self-righteous, and uncaring criticism of other people, something we're told here not to do. 
Now, it's important to realize that these verses aren't saying that we're supposed to suspend our critical thinking or our critical reasoning in relation to other people. I mean, we're not to turn a blind eye to people's faults or the things that they're doing wrong. And we're never, it's not, it's not saying we're never to make a moral judgment and refuse to discern between what's good and what's right, what's error and not. He's not saying that. I mean, because Jesus himself even makes value judgments throughout this whole sermon we've been looking at, throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he called the Pharisees? <laughs> he called them hypocrites. And he said, do not be like them. That's a judgment. That is a judgment, okay? And he also tells us throughout this sermon, he's been telling us, don't live like this, live like this. Don't say these things, say these things. So it's not that he's not saying to do that. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us to lovingly confront our fellow believers when we notice that they need correction. Look at what he says here in Galatians. He says, brothers and sisters, actually, anyone, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you are too are tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So you see here that we are supposed to lovingly correct one another and we're supposed to help each other see each other's faults. I think there's this false thing in the church a lot of times that says, well, true Christian, if I'm a real Christian, I'm going to be loving. And loving and kind means not really pointing out other people's faults because that might make them mad. That's crazy. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because how else will we know when we're getting off track? How else will we know when we have faults unless we have people that love us and care about us coming and telling us so? They were supposed to, but what he says here is when we do it, it's to be done by generously extending grace in the spirit of love and with that person's best interest in mind. Now, he goes on to say that this type of fault-finding judgment is wrong. We're not to do it, not only because, as we're going to see, it's hypocritical, but because it turns back against us, on us. It can turn back on us, not only in the way how other people treat us, but I believe that this is going deeper. What he's talking about is something deeper. Look again what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, for the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Ouch. That doesn't mean to just, oh, you're a judgmental person, so other people are going to be judgmental to you. This tells us that we need to be ever mindful of the truth that God will judge us, yes, us, Christians, when we stand before him. This is such a tricky, tricky passage. But look what Romans chapter 2 says. The Apostle Paul says this, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God, is, God rightfully falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's talking to believers here. He's talking to the believers. Now, this does not mean that when we get to heaven, God is going to go, hmm, let me see, should I let you in or not? 
He's not talking about salvation here. Our salvation is not in jeopardy. We know that once we are in Christ, that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We know that. It does mean, though, that one day, you and I are going to stand before God, and we are going to give an account for the things that we've said and for the things that we have done. And actually, we are going to be evaluated by God. What this includes, really, is determining our spiritual rewards, our eternal rewards. Our salvation isn't on the line. But that doesn't mean that, okay, this is that cheap grace they talk about. Oh, I'm saved. I can live however. I got my fire insurance. Great. I'm good to go. No, there's still a lot on the line. There's still a lot, a lot on the line. It's being able to come to our heavenly father, not in shame, but when we get to heaven and him going, well done, good and faithful servant, not because you were perfect, but because you took this seriously and you tried to draw as close as you could to me to have your life change more and more and more and to, be like, to be like my son. That's what, this is. That's what this is about. So bottom line here is we should expect to be measured or judged by the same standard that we measure or judge other people. Look at verses three and four. Verses three and four now tell us not to be hypocritical in our attitude towards others. Don't be hypocritical. Look what he says in verses three and four. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? What a crazy, crazy use of words. Just crazy. Look at well, these verses, what they're doing is they're pointing out the inappropriateness of drawing attention to another person's faults when we have our own faults that are even greater than theirs. As we've seen, it's not wrong to notice or to try to help other people. It's not wrong to do that. It's not wrong to come to someone and say, hey, I see something in your life. I see something where you're falling short. But a person who ignores their own greater faults or failings, is there, there's no way they're not in the position to be very, of very much help. And to show us this, Jesus uses incredible hyperbole or exaggeration here to show us with the log or the plank, some of your versions say, how it's meant to show us how hypocritical we are. Can you just imagine? I love that this picture that he puts in, in there, and don't Google it and don't try to find it. Scott's doing it right now. I can, he tries to do it when I say these things. Yeah. Picture this guy, okay, he's got a speck in his eye. You ever get a little thing in your eye and it's just driving you nuts, that little thing in there? You're like, oh, crud, I got something in my eye. So it's a problem. It hurts. It's really, oh, it's driving him nuts. And along comes this other guy with this big old log, big old log sticking out of his eye, okay? He walks up to the guy going, oh, I got a little speck in my eye, and he offers to help. Hey, man, can I, can I help you? Can I help you get that little speck out of your eye? And that, without even bothering to think, well, maybe I should remove mine first. But see what he's saying here? See how ridiculous? I love how Jesus uses things that are just absolutely ridiculous to get our attention, See how hypocritical it is to even think that you should be able to do that? The reality is that we all have blind spots, don't we? We all have blind spots that we need people to speak into, that we need people to help us make aware of, to help us to see our faults. But the truth is, we can be quick 
to judge and even meddle in people's lives, yet neglect our own more serious faults. Have you ever seen that happen? Anybody ever had that happen in your life before? It happens like crazy. I think we do it more often than we think we do, too. That's why Jesus is getting at this. Examine yourself first. So it's hypocritical to let ourselves off the hook for our own failures while calling to account someone else's. I got to help you here. Hey, I don't have any problem. I don't got, I'm not dealing with anything. I got, I got to help you here. That's what he's saying. Now, look at verse 5. Verse 5, Jesus goes on to tell us that we're to help others only after addressing our own faults. We help out only help out others only after we dress our own faults. Look what he says here in verse 5. You hypocrite. <laughs> Jesus doesn't hold back at all. I love it. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, this verse is just pointing to the ridiculousness of the idea of offering to help another person with their fault before we're ready to deal with ours. What Jesus is saying here is the appropriate action is to confess our own sin. Ask God. I had to do this the other day. I had to do this over the, over the week. I felt like there was someone I needed to confront, but I wanted to say, wait a second. Is there anything I got First, what have I got first? It kind of like, I, I picture that kind of working like a windshield wiper to kind of clean off my windshield to really be able to see that I can really help out. Because I, I know I got blind spots. They're gonna be there. So the appropriate action is confess our sin, even our own self-righteousness. I think a lot of times we gotta realize, you know what? Wait, and am I being a little self-righteous here in how I'm coming across? Why am I pointing this out to them? Because I feel the need I have to be the one to do it. Or I'm a little bit better, or it's going to make me feel good to do that. We need to confess those things so that we can clearly see our brother's faults in order to be able to truly help them. What we actually see from this verse I really like is the fact that we are supposed to help people. We are supposed to call out people. We're supposed to call out, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, doesn't it mean that you who are like, you know, way up there spiritual? No, those of you that have the spirit of God inside of you, this is your job. We are to call people out in love like we talk, but in the way that he's telling us to do here. One commentator I read this week said this. Check it out. He says, according to Jesus, even those with logs Bigger or more obvious sins have not only the right, but also the obligation to help those with specs, those with little or less obvious sin. So we're called to deal with the log. If we're not supposed to say, okay, I got that. This could also be like one of those things where we think, I got these big problems. Who am I to call out somebody else? What Jesus is saying here, who you are is someone that is being called as a child of God to call somebody out after you start dealing, not when you get totally done, not when you're totally perfect, but as you are recognizing that you have your own issues that God needs to work with. Then you're freed up to help someone. Then you don't look like a hypocrite. 
Now, when we do this, we need to be sure that we're confronting and dealing with our own issues. I read this one guy, a Presbyterian scholar and author, uh, Logan Duncan, described it as mutually disciplining each other in the Lord. That's our job. That's our role as fellow believers is to mutually discipline each other in the Lord. But we don't like that, do we? I won't ask for a raise of hands. Please don't tell me. How many of you do not like confrontation? This is going to be a tough one. This is going to be a tough one for you because you always feel like, well, if I do, they're going to think I'm doing what to them? I'm judging them. Yes, I know it's so hard. But that's where, can you see how it works, though? Having good, godly, effective, wonderful relationships only happen when we're telling the truth to one another because we love one another and we're not being hypocritical. Can you imagine what kind of healthy community that would be, look like? If we're lovingly calling one another out and asking people and opening ourselves like, please tell me, please tell me. I did my self-evaluation. I had a, my yearly self-evaluation with the elders last week. And I told them after we went over my evaluation, I said, guys, okay, you're telling me some really nice things. But I need to tell me if you've got anything I need to know, any blind spots I got. Are there, is there anything I'm missing? Anything where I'm going sideways a little bit? Anything that I need to see that I'm not seeing because I need you to tell me? And I didn't do that because I'm so special and trying to be humble. Yes, tell me my... No, I'm realizing, you know, I cannot be the leader that I'm supposed to be. I cannot be the Christian I'm supposed to be unless godly men are speaking into my life and I'm letting them speak into my life, willing to hear the hard stuff. I know for some of us that's difficult. That's very difficult because we have not had healthy people in our lives telling us the cor- or correcting us. It's people that have been hip- hypocritical, as Jesus is talking here, talking about. All right, these first five verses, really what they're meant to do is they're really meant to cause us, to give us serious pause in order to examine ourselves before we, before we do anything, before saying anything, okay? Remembering that our fallen nature really is profoundly selfish and it's profoundly proud and often hypocritical. That's who we are. Oftentimes we judge other, ourselves so much more lenient than others, don't we? Well, I'm not doing it that bad. And we look at them and go, what are you doing? Don't we do that? <laughs> if we just turn the table, we would see. Now, Jesus continues to help us with this proper attitude towards others in verse 6 by making this crazy, weird, unusual statement, okay? Check this out. Verse 6 says this, do not give dogs what is holy, And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What the heck? That is just a crazy, weird thing. What Jesus is doing here is he's helping us not to be hypocritical judges, but to use discernment, okay? To be able to use discernment with how we go about helping others, not only to see their faults, but how we share the gospel with non-believers as well. There's one thing to say, go ahead, go for it, everybody. Start confronting each other. But then he goes, whoa, 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 wait a second. Let me give you some, let me give you some tips here. Let me help you with some discernment, because a lot of us aren't the best at discernment. I know I've been accused of not having much of a filter sometimes, and I get that. I get that, especially by my wife, who is not here, thankfully, for that announcement. But yeah, so yeah, so what he's saying is, let me give you some, help you with some discernment here. The imagery of things that are holy 
or pearls, which represent things that are very precious, most likely refers to both godly wisdom that we can give to people and the good news of the gospel that we give to non-believers. Okay, wisdom, godly wisdom that we want to give fellow believers, but also the gospel message that we have to share. Proverbs 20:15 says this: There is a gold, there is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. That nice. Now dogs back then People didn't have dogs like many, they weren't, you didn't see people taking their dogs for a walk back then. Dogs were filthy, stray animals that fed in the garbage dumps. That's what dogs were. And pigs were the epitome of uncleanliness for the Jews, both literally and spiritually. So what Jesus is doing with this imagery here is that this is of people saying people who refuse to listen to words of wisdom and have had ample opportunity to hear and receive the good news of the gospel, but, have, but they ridicule it, and they defiantly reject it. Like, you might have speaking wisdom into their life, I want to tell you, and they basically said, shut up, I don't want to hear that. You, I, you know what, you're just judging me over and over again. Or people that we've shared the gospel with, they said, that is so foolish, I don't want to hear it anymore. How could you possibly believe that? We've talked to them over and over. What he's saying here is there's a point where we get where we just don't do that. We just don't go anymore. Look what Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 says. It says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And who, who, recovers a, who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. A, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Now, Jesus is not discouraging us from speaking wisdom into people's lives or preaching the gospel. We know that we are actually commanded to do these things. We're supposed to do both of them. But it becomes apparent that our words of correction and the gospel message is not getting through to them, they're not, not being welcome. What he's telling us here is to move on. We are to just move on. We are responsible to share the good news. We're not responsible for people's response to the good news. Okay? That's very important to remember. Our job is not to force conversations or cram wisdom or cram the good news of the gospel down people's throats. The bottom line of this thing, what he's saying is there are going to come times when there is no point offering these valuable things to these people because they're only going to despise them and continue to reject them. Now, that brings up a big question. I'm sure some of you might be thinking, what about those of us that have friends or family members who flat out do not want to hear corrective wisdom and they don't want anything to do with the gospel. They want nothing to do with the gospel message. Heck, you might even be ridiculed for sharing the gospel with them. What does that mean? I love my family members. I love my friends. Do I just never say anything again? This is tricky. This is tricky here. In these cases, really what we're to do, what the disciples did when they went out to preach, what Paul did, and what even Jesus did when this very same thing happened to them. With a heavy heart, we leave them to themselves and in God's hands. That doesn't mean we stop praying for them. 
It does not mean that we don't look for opportunities that the Holy Spirit might be working. But what he's saying here is, listen, back off. They've had ample opportunity to hear wisdom. Now back off and don't judge either. Let God do his thing. That's tough. Isn't that tough words? The Bible's hard sometimes. The thing has to say. Now, this isn't showing that God's going to go, fine, I'm done with them. We don't know what God is doing in people's lives. We don't know how he's working. But we do know if they've been constantly been trampling and stepping on and kicking what we're, what we're trying to say. He's saying here, stop. Stop. But don't stop loving and caring and showing your love, showing your care, don't, and praying like crazy. Don't stop that. So that's a tough, that, that is a tough one. So how do we do all this? How do we practically go about not being judgmental? How do we have the wisdom and the foresight to be able to take the log out of our own eye before we try to get the speck out of someone else's? And how do we make sure that we're being discerning with how and who we give wisdom to and how we share the gospel and who we share the gospel with? This is tough. This is not, I can't give you, here's, here's five points. Here's when you should stop talking. Here's when you should start. This is tough. This is all stuff that's in the spiritual realm and that's where Jesus goes next, Okay. This is what Jesus, he tells us in these next chunk of verses, which we're not going to go for very long with these, but he's going to show you verses 7 through 11, how we're to begin. Here's how we begin to discern, to understand how to live this out. Look what he says in verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. And if you seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, will be, it will be opened. Or which one of you, of his sons, asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? In these verses, Jesus is telling that in order to be able to have healthy, God-honoring relationships that are contingent on others-focused attitude, we are to expect good things from God as we persist in prayer. Expect good things from God as we persist in prayer. Now, as we've already seen the last chapter, good, chapter, good things don't necessarily include the things that we might like to have, but more often than not, they're the things that we need to have. Fortunately, even when we don't know the difference, our Heavenly Father does. He knows what we need. Things like forgiveness, strength to resist temptation, power to proclaim the gospel, wisdom, wisdom here, wisdom to live out all that Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Someone helped me a long time ago when I was in college to pray the most important prayer I could ever pray is to ask God for wisdom. And he took me right to, he took me right to where Solomon's prayer when he said, I, just, I want wisdom. How could I possibly rule all these people? I can't do it. I need wisdom. And even with that, 
because of our flesh. We saw how Solomon made so many big mistakes. So we need to constantly be coming before God, asking for wisdom, wisdom to live out all these things, including how to not be judgmental and to be able to take the log out of our eye first and to be used use discernment. Now, the verb tense here, the seek, knock, and ask, are all, this is what is called the present imperatives, okay? Which refers to, the, what this, ref, this present imperative refer, refers to, a habitual, habitual long-term practice. It's ongoing. I'm continuing to do this. It's a practice of prayer. We continue to practice constantly and expecting God. We're going to pray. We're going to expect. That's why if your prayer meeting gets small, keep praying, if things don't seem to be getting answered where you're praying, he's saying, keep praying. Don't, okay, I, but God, I knocked. I thought. I asked. Didn't get it. All right, move on. No. The way this is worded is keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. It's like, and it's like the kid who says, how long do I got to keep doing this? Until I tell you to stop. And he's not going to tell you to stop. Because he wants to change us. He wants to change how we view him, not as a vending machine, but as a God who loves us and wants to change us and give us good, good things. Now, that's, that, now, that's a commitment to prayer. To be learned to pray like that continually, long-term, and habitually is, is tough. But these verses tell us that when we ask God for what is good, according to his will... He will answer in his timing. Did you hear me there? When we continually ask God for good things according to his will, he will answer us in his timing. If you ask him to help, to strip away the condemning, fault-finding, self-righteous spirit, he will do it. If you ask him to help you gently and humbly approach someone about the speck in their eye, he will do it. And he'll do it because, as we've seen in these verses, that's the kind of gracious and generous and loving Heavenly Father that we have. Now, don't get me, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about that health, wealth, prosperity thing where if I name it and claim it, and I got, it's mine. I'm not talking about that. When we learn, that's why prayer needs to be consistent. This is off-roading a little bit here, guys. This is why prayer needs to be consistent because God wants to teach us. It's more about instant, it's not about instant gratification. It's more about teaching us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, the kind of people that can truly enjoy who he is instead of what society says will make you happy. God wants, as we see it right here, he wants to give us good things. That's what he wants to do. But so often we think, I don't really believe that because I asked and things didn't turn out like I was hoping. Does that mean God's not good anymore? Oh, it just means God knows what's good. And sometimes what's good is painful and goes against what we want. Now, as we live out our faith in him, what happens is Well, first of all, what he's telling us here is that when we do this, 
He tells us this is actually sums up the teaching of the entire Old Testament. Look at the bottom part there. He talks about, it gives, it, it, it depends on the law. It talks about the law. It's fulfilling the entire Old Testament, the Jewish law, the Torah, the rites, everything. What Jesus is doing here is actually summing up the whole ethical requirements of, the spirit, of spirituality for the Old Testament, the standard for a holy lifestyle that he asked, wanted people to live. Now, as we live out our faith in him, we prove that we are truly his disciples. Only Jesus could fulfill the law. Only Jesus could meet the demands that the law had to be holy. So now that we're in him, now that we believe in him, now that we walk with him, we prove we're his disciples by doing what he's saying here. In a nutshell, this is what it means to be a true disciple or follower of Jesus, to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Who doesn't know that? Who has in this world has not heard that phrase before? Everybody knows the golden rule. Everybody has heard, everybody has heard this. Everybody has heard all these things before. So Jesus makes a statement where um, and he's going to help us to see here uh, the, how, the, how the golden rule is the, go, is the governing principle for all relationships. I got off track there, didn't I, guys? Sorry. So the, what he goes now is Jesus makes a statement and tells us how this golden rule sums up, the, is the principle for all relationships, the golden rule. Look what he says here. So whatever you wish, I got ahead of myself, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them, for this is the law of of the prophets. See, Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows the human heart, that it's selfish. He even described it. Remember back in verse 11, he even said that we are inherently evil. Wow. What the golden rule here does, it actually gives us a standard by which naturally selfish people can gauge their actions. Treat one another the way that I would like to be treated. Or put another way, how others would like to be treated is to be the guide for our behavior towards them, okay? And he's saying that this, this sums up the whole law. In a nutshell, this is what it means, he said, to be a disciple. To the Galatians, the apostle Paul wrote this. He said, for the whole law is summed up, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole ball of wax right here. It's all, it's, this is it. This is where it gets down to. Now, it's interesting if you notice that Jesus' version of the golden rule focuses on the positive, opposed to really many of those that are the gold versions of the golden rule that are found even in Jewish, um, Jewish and pagan literature, which focus more on the negative, like don't do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Okay, even in Buddhism and plenty of other religions, they'll say things like, whatever you would like not to be done to you, you also might not do to others. I can fulfill that by doing nothing. Really, just do nothing. And great, I'm not gonna do anything bad. They won't do bad back to me. No, what Jesus is doing, Jesus' positive version represents a more demanding interpretation of love and is to function as a guide to how unselfish love should work itself out in our relationships with others. 
Really, the reality is that the golden rule flows out of our experience of a gracious and generous God, doesn't it? Let me wrap up here. He says, you see, if we're living the golden rule, if we're living this golden rule, then just as God has done with us, we will freely and wholeheartedly extend love and grace to others by first examining our own lives in order that we will be able to make sure that we can have an appropriate view of ourselves before we attempt to help and correct other people. Let me ask you, are we a community like that? Are we a community that has the proper attitude towards others that is characterized by first impulse to extend grace and forgiveness rather than to judge? I really don't think that the evangelical world has that, that's not the tag that we have, I would venture to say. But that's what we're called to be. Our first reaction, and I got to tell you, this little side note, I've been trying to practice that on the road lately, because that's my issue. I've probably brought it up five times with you guys. That's one of my things. Someone drives crazy, because I'm a very offensive driver, grew up in LA, I'm a, that's what I drive around. Um, so I, someone will cut me off, or someone will do it, and my first reaction, well, you did, <clears throat> well, you know what, wait, wait a second, I don't know them. What am I, do I want to be judged the same way that I'm judging them? Do I want God to, li- no, no. That's hard, I gotta tell you, it's not, my, it's not my first reaction, I'm just telling you that, confession. It's not my first, but it's one that God is helping me with to do, and I do that with other things too. I'll see someone, they look a certain way, and I'll go, oh my gosh, why, oh, wait, wait, I don't know, and who am I? To say that, I don't know their heart, by the way, and, and I don't want to be a judgment. I don't want that to be a root of judgmentalism in my life. I don't want to be that kind of person that's not a disciple of Christ. It's not that we're to turn a blind eye to other people's faults and sins, but we are, we are supposed to be discerning with regard to when and how to offer the correction that we're supposed to give and to offer the good news of the gospel. Also, do we expect good things from God? Do you expect God to give you good things as you persist in praying that he will give you the wisdom to examine yourself before you start judging other people? But that's time, I want to challenge you with this. Next time you're, challenged, you're, you're tempted to make a judgment call about somebody, ask, let that be a cue to go to God in prayer. Let that be a cue to turn to God and say, God, help me to examine myself. God, what's going on in me that needs to change? What's going on in me that needs work? What's my blind spot that I'm missing, God? Because I just judged somebody. I was just judgmental. And I want that to be a flag, a red flag in my life. And I re-examine what you're doing in me so I can truly be your disciple. Lastly, a question that we might need, we might need to ask a question. What might need to change if we were to always allow we were always to think first to treat others the way we wanted to be treated. What was that? What, what would change in our life? How would our life be different if that was our reaction to try to treat other people like we want to be treated? When you're in line at the grocery store, you're in line at the gas station, you're driving somewhere, you're, whatever it is, how might your life look differently? How might my life look differently? And how might that impact the kingdom? How might that impact that person for the kingdom? How might that impact me for the kingdom? I'm going to close with this verse. I think the Apostle Paul summed up today's passage really great when he told the church in Colossae, he told this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, put on then 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all else, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness. I thank you for the challenge of your word here. And I know for myself, I, I really need you to help me in this area. I pray for all of us that we would not be judgmental but that we would be loving and that we would be kind. When we see a brother or a sister in Christ that is really possibly straying from um, being a true disciple, that we would first examine ourselves and that you would give us the wisdom and the strength to confront them in love so that they could be all that you desire them to be. And Father God, those that we desire to share the gospel with, give us wisdom and how to do that when to do that, when to back off, and when to just pray. God, we desperately need you to live out this Christian life. We confess that we try to do it on our own a lot, but we, God, we need you today, Father. And as we go into our time of communion today, Father God, just pray that as we reflect on these verses and on these truths, God, that you would give us an opportunity to see into our own hearts and maybe new ways that we haven't before. Thank you, God, for an opportunity to, to reflect. Show us now in these last moments how, God, we can be more and more in your will and following you and trusting you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.